Father, you have the words of eternal life. We don't want to go anywhere else. This is why we're here. And we're going to open your word. And we do want to hear from you. Nobody will be helped hearing simply from me. But may I be an instrument for your voice, your truth, your gospel. In Jesus' holy and matchless name, we pray. Amen. Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Starting with verse 1. We're going to read through verse 7 for context, but we will be focusing on verse 2. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. I'm not sure how aware you are of the uh, assaults and claims that are made against the gospel of God. They range from racial reasons to historical reasons. But it all points back to origin. It's the question of where did this come from? Where did Christianity truly arise from? Where did this gospel message come from? One of the biggest ones I heard growing up was, where I came from, that Christianity is the white man's religion. Anybody heard that one before? It's the idea that Christianity began in Europe with Europeans and they came up with it as a tool to enslave, trick, and conquer uh, Africans and Native Americans, among others. From the conquistadors going to the natives, to the slave traders who stole men and women from the shores of Africa, they show how uh, the natives didn't worship Jesus, the Africans didn't read the Bible, they had their own religions, and the slave traders and conquistadors and settlers forced this new religion upon them for the sake of conquering them. I remember very vividly when I was in college, I t- rode the bus, and I'd be, after a full day of school, riding the bus back home. And on one side, I had a Rastafarian, and on the other side, I had a Nation of Islam Muslim. And though they have very different theologies, they were agreed on this point. What you believe, sir, is wrong, and it arises from the white man's religion. Is this true? But that's not the only claim that's made. There's a big scandal going on in the SBC right now, SBC, Southern Baptist Convention. It's not as big as it should be, and this is the big issue. The president of the SBC has been caught red-handed plagiarizing sermons, ironically, from the previous president. We're talking hundreds, word for word. Uh, even saying things like, when I went to this place with my family, copying the whole thing, whole cloth. And as Christians, we object to such a thing. We say that is wrong. Plagiarism is stealing. Um, You're taking from someone else. It's lying. 
But one of the claims that's made about Christianity is that our very religion, our doctrine, our Christ, our gospel itself is nothing more than plagiarism. From where, you may say? From ancient pagan religions. There's a book called The World's Sixteen Saviors, written by a guy named Kersey. Um, And he says this, speaking of all these different 16 saviors from different religions, their histories are strangely similar, too much so not to have been derived from a common source. Let us take as a type that of Krishna. It is said of him that his birth was foretold, that he was an incarnate God, his mother was a virgin, that he had an adopted father who was a carpenter, that he was rejoicing on earth and in heaven at his birth, that his mother's name was Maya, sounds like Mary. He was born in an obscure situation on December 25th. He was visited by wise men and shepherds who were led by a star. He was warned by an angel of danger that all children were uh, ordered to be destroyed in order to include him. He had a forerunner. He was wise in childhood. He was even called a savior, redeemer, shepherd, lion of the tribe of Sakia not Judah, and that he existed before birth. And he goes on to name 346 supposed similarities between Krishna and Christ. But remember, the book is called 16 Saviors. So he goes on and talk about Horus, Mithras, Dionysus, and others. Cultures that came hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the face of the earth. The Da Vinci Code, many of you may have heard of that book, made into a movie, helped to spread the idea with quotes like this, nothing in Christianity is original. The pre-Christian god Mithras, called the son of God and the light of the world, was born on December 25th, died, was buried in a rock tomb, and then resurrected in three days. By the way, December 25th is also the birthday of Osiris, Adonis, and Dionysus. Again, is this true? The ideas, beliefs, theology of the very gospel of God, that's what I'm calling this sermon, the gospel of God, is it just the result of clever copying? Is Christianity nothing more than the result of theft and plagiarism? If somebody came to you with these claims, how would you respond? There's another Um, that is being widely accepted by many theologians and scholars that say the gospel, Christianity, what we know to be Christianity, is nothing more than Paul's ideas. Names like N.T. Wright, among others, are proclaiming such thing. One of these theologians said this, if Paul wanted the Gentiles to embrace the Jewish Messiah, Paul had to strip away all those remnants of Judaism, like circumcision, which were so offensive to his converts, and he had to allow uh, myths to flourish. Paul did all this. He created a church for Gentiles, and he called it Christianity. So what they're saying is, there was a, a religion before Paul came. Paul, he basically took what was, and he wanted it to be embraced by the Gentiles. And he knew Gentiles wouldn't accept true religion, so he put in some myths, put in some of their pagan stuff, and he made up his own thing. What do the Catholics say? They say, we've been around since Peter. And this thing that y'all call Christianity, your gospel of faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, based upon the testimony of Scripture alone for the glory of God alone, is the new kid on the block. Protestantism, Christianity, it's the new thing. Well, again, what do you say in response to this? What do we see Paul saying in this very text, he says, the gospel of God which he promised beforehand. The gospel was promised by God in the past. Our gospel wasn't invented by Paul, by racists, by pagans, by Luther, Calvin, or any other reformer. Our gospel, the only true gospel, was invented by God himself and was promised beforehand. 
It's his invention, it's his creation, and he promised it. So, point one, the gospel of God is a promised gospel. Well, what was promised? The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message that God is holy, holy, holy. He is perfect. He created all things. I was just saying this last night. Why did He create all things? Not because God was lonely. For God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He dwells in a triune community. God didn't need someone to love. God is love. And the Father loves the Son. And the Son loves the Spirit. God didn't need someone to talk to. God is a communicator and has that relationship. What did God do as Creator, as Sovereign Ruler and Lord, perfectly sufficient within Himself? He made this world and everything in it so that you and I, that human beings, could enjoy Him forever, glorify Him with their lives, worship Him. But mankind rejected God. Mankind believed the lie of the serpent that said, you can be God yourself. And God, the Righteous One, rejected by men, His righteousness demands that He crush the rebellion. But God is merciful. God is gracious, patient, slow to anger. And God responds by sending His Son into this world in the likeness of sinful flesh to obey the law where we failed to suffer in our place as an atoning sacrifice, taking the wrath of God that we so rightly deserved, rising again victorious from the grave with the, with the enemies chained behind Him with the promise that everyone who believes in Christ Jesus will be saved. The Gospel... The gospel was promised. God promised to rescue sinners from His wrath, from the power of sin, from slavery to the devil, to save us, to free us, to give us forgiveness and His righteousness, and to have fellowship with Him. He promised this. He promised to fix all that is broken within this world. He promised Himself to be our very peace and salvation forever. As one brother said, the gospel is good news, but it is not new news. The gospel of God is ancient. It is from God, about God, and established in God. Well, the important question to ask is, when was it promised? What would you say? How many of you would say Genesis? Genesis 3.15, right? The proto-evangelon, the first speaking of the gospel, the first time we see the gospel and what does Genesis 3.15 says? This is after they've eaten from the tree. This is after their eyes were opened. And, and the Lord God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There it is, right? First mention of the gospel the first time that we're told there's going to be a solution to this mess, there's going to be a Savior to rescue, and this is the only one who's going to be able to put an end to the work of the devil. But is that it? Is that the first time that God said anything about the Gospel? Here's what can happen. That leaves us to the possibility of God adjusting His plans because of man's sin. In other words, is the Gospel just God's plan B? You know what a plan B is, right? You make plans. You intend to do something. Something messes up those plans. So what do you have to do? You have to adjust. You have to think of something else. You have to get around this stumbling block. Is that what God did? He had this plan. Everything was supposed to stay perfect. Man messed it up and now God says, oh man, I need to come up with a solution to this. I know. I'm going to send my son. That's what some people believe. Is that what God did? He had to scramble to think of a way to fix what man did. When was the gospel promised? How far back can we go? Well, Ephesians 1, 3 says this. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. When did God choose us? Before the foundation of the world. Before there was a garden, before there was a serpent, there was a choice to choose for adoption. Think of the implications of that. 2 Timothy 1.8 Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. Think of that. Before the ages began. We see directly that salvation as a plan and purpose before the ages began is, com- is directly connected. This is an ancient gospel. Paul wasn't around. Krishna wasn't around. Slave traders, conspiracy theorists were not around. Satan wasn't around. This is the gospel of God. And lastly, Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Wow. Everyone whose name has not been written, which means there are those whose names have been written, when? Before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. You have the Lamb being slain before the foundation of the world. You have names being written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. All the implications of needing a Savior. You only need a Savior if there's sin. You only have sin if there's a fall. You only have a fall if there's a serpent. The idea is this. God has no plan B. The Gospel was God's plan from the very beginning. He knew what He was doing. He's not adjusting, scrambling, or trying to fix up what man messed up. It was God's intention from the beginning to choose and adopt people unto himself for the sake of exalting his son, glorifying himself, displaying his wisdom and grace and mercy. God is the sovereign one and there is no plan B with him. Now Christian, do you grasp what this means for you? This means he chose you. He desired you. He wanted you and provided everything that you need to be saved before the world was ever made. He had you in His mind for adoption and salvation. Think of all the sins of your life. Do you think that a single thing that you can do could ever disrupt the plan of God? Nothing thwart his plans. The fall of man could not stop what God had planned before men were ever made. So when was the gospel promised? Before the foundation of the world and right from the beginning in Genesis 3.15. Now Martin Lloyd-Jones asks a brilliant question at this point. Why did it take so long? I mean, think about it. God made a promise Let's just go to Genesis. He made a promise, 3.15. How long did it take? Well, from day 6 to Malachi, 4,000 years. 4,000 years between the Old and New Testaments. And then there is the 400 years in what's called the intertestimonial period. And then you have John the Baptist being born, and then Jesus is born, but Jesus doesn't even begin his earthly ministry until he's 30. So you have almost about 5,000 years of waiting from the time that God made the promise to when it was fulfilled. And Lloyd-Jones asked the question, why did it take so long? Especially when we know what the Bible says about God. Psalm 115.3, for example, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. 
Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the sea and all the deeps. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, nobody could have stopped God from doing what he wanted to do. He could have prevented the fall, couldn't he? God is not powerless. He could have said on the very day that Adam sinned, I'm sending my son. But he didn't. 4,000 years passed, and then another 400, and then more time. Children, have you ever said, I want to be grown? Why? Because adults, grown-ups, they get to go to bed when they want to. But we have to go to bed when our parents tell us. Adults can eat whatever they want, but we have to eat what they tell us. I want to be grown so I can do what I want. Have you ever thought that way, kids? Yeah, I mean, it's a normal feeling. But the truth of the matter is, adults can't do whatever we want. We can't stop sickness. We can't stop the weather. We can't stop death. We are powerless to stop a thousand things. God is not powerless. He does whatever he wants, can do whatever he wants, and always does his holy will. So why did it take so long? Let's dig deeper. Some say it's because he wanted us to have free will. Is that what the Bible says? Is that why God waited so long? Well, let me compound this somewhat. He waited 4,000, almost 5,000 years. It would be one thing if that period of almost 5,000 years was peaceful, full of purity and godliness. But what's the truth? From Genesis to Malachi, what do we see? We see sin. Great sin. Sin soaking into everything. God says in Genesis 6, right, not, not long after He created Adam, you get Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. From Adam until Noah, human beings were so sinful that he flooded the world. After the flood, God says this, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The sin that abounded in that waiting time. How many of those sins could have been avoided if the Lord would have sent his son sooner? And what about the pain and sorrow, the results of sin? How many broken marriages, orphans, murder, rape, uh, the wars, the conflicts? How many tears could have been prevented? How much sorrow and pain and suffering and misery could have been prevented if the Lord would have just sent Jesus sooner? He promised the gospel, but it took almost 5,000 years to fulfill. And if that's not enough... Add to that all the false religion, the idolatry, the paganism, the burning of children. If only Christ had come sooner. If Christianity had started right from the beginning, would things have been different? Have you ever said as a Christian, those of you who weren't saved when you were six, if God would have saved me, if I would have repented and believed in my childhood, how much sin would I have avoided? How much good could I have done? How much of a blessing would I have been if I would have started my life and my youth living for Christ? And that's just one life. We're looking at the whole world here. Why did he wait so long? Why did he allow the fall of man in the first place? Well, truth is, there's great mystery here. And in one sense, I don't know, except for the fact that that's what he wanted to do, right? Uh, For his own plan, his own purposes, he acts and moves. Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. There it is, the fullness of time. Whose time? His time, his timing. 
When God said, now is the time, that's when He sent His Son. But I will offer one reason why I think the Lord waited as long as He did. I think a reason, not the reason, but a reason that the promise appears to have been delayed is to show us without a shadow of a doubt that mankind is unable to fix himself. I mean, think about it with me, brothers and sisters. God walked with men, and they still didn't love him. He gave them his law. He wrote it with his finger, and they still wouldn't obey him. He was their king, and they still would not submit to him. He gave them supernatural experiences, manna from heaven, water from a rock. He destroyed their enemies with plagues. He split the sea for them to walk across on dry land. He even caused the sun to stand still. He rained down fire and brimstone upon cities and great boulders upon enemies. He did mighty works by the hand of angels. God did so much. Man had ample opportunity to worship and trust and love and obey. And when you look at the record, what do you see? Rebellion, rejection, depravity. With all of this, human beings could not and would not stop sinning against Him. And isn't this what we see in our own world today? How many people set the rules for themselves to live by. They set their own standard. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do that. These are my standards. These are my morals. And these are the things that I'll never do. And yet when they set the rules, when they set the standards, they don't even keep them. Can you relate? Remember when you tried to add your own laws your own rules, your own commandments to your life to change yourself, to better yourself, to strengthen yourself. I want to be different. I want to be right. I want to be righteous. I want to be good. I'm tired of these things that I'm doing. So what would you do? You would heap upon yourself rules and commandments and laws, maybe worship experiences, surround yourself with truth, read the Bible, pray, go to church, do this, that, and the other, go on a pilgrimage. You tried a hundred and thousand different things, but at the end of it, you found yourself still in the dark still a slave, completely unable to fix yourself. Man is left speechless before God. There is no excuse. Every single opportunity to free ourselves has been provided. And yet, when it all boils down, what do we find? Just what it says in Judges 17.6, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's what we are when we're left to ourselves. We're looking at the reality of the gospel of God which he promised beforehand. Uh, How could God promise this unless he's sovereign? I mean, again, think about it. God promises beforehand, and it's going to take almost 5,000 years to bring to pass. If one person did something completely different from what his will was, it all would have been messed up. What if Moses was not picked up by Pharaoh's daughter? What if Seth would have been torn apart by wild beasts? What if Samuel wasn't obedient to go and find David? You see, everything had to be perfect. Everything had to be aligned. Everything had to be in place in order for the promise to be fulfilled. And only a God who is completely sovereign over the smallest atom to the greatest star that makes our sun look like a grain of sand could do that. Only a God who controls all, who rules all, who is in power over all could bring that to pass. The promise is fulfilled because He is sovereign but his promise was fulfilled it did come to pass which leads to the question how did God promise this gospel it's important to know that God promised it but our text is focusing on how he promised it how did he do this well it says that 
He used means. The gospel of God which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The second point, not only is this gospel of God a promised gospel, it's also a biblical gospel. You see where I get that. Through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Our sovereign God uses means, natural means, to accomplish His will. He used human beings called prophets who spoke and wrote about the gospel of God in the Holy Scriptures. Now the word prophet literally means one who speaks before, in front of, or on behalf of someone else. It's a forth teller, uh, not a fortune teller. Now when you think about the prophets of God and really think about it, they were not always predicting the future. They were often standing up on behalf of God, proclaiming the truth of God, calling men to re re repent, to believe, to turn back to the law, to walk in holiness. For example, when you think of prophets, do you think of John the Baptist? Jesus said this in Matthew 11, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who was leached in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, John the Baptist, was a prophet. What prophecy did he make about the future? You think about John's ministry, what did he do? He preached. He preached the truth. He preached about the coming Messiah. He called men to repent. He called women to repent, to turn back to God. This was the primary work of the prophet. Barclay, he says this, prophet means both a foreteller and a foreteller. They foretold the future, but even more, they foretold the will of God. John MacArthur echoes the truth when he says, prophets is one who speaks out. We think of a prophet as somebody who says, in three weeks the sky is going to fall. It actually wasn't until medieval times that the word prophet became connected with the idea of prediction in the English language. It was always connected with the idea of speaking forth. The prophet was someone who gave God a voice in the world. And this is why the test of the prophet was not just, will they tell the future? Deuteronomy 13.1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The question of the prophet is what are they preaching? What God are they pointing you to? It's not just did they say something and it came to pass. The, the test of the prophet is what's their doctrine? What's their theology? Who are they pointing you to? Who were the prophets? What is meant by prophet? Well, this is meaning everyone who wrote Scripture. Often in the New Testament, uh, the Bible is wrapped up with the, with the phrase, the law and the prophets, right? Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. This is a phrase which means the entire Old Testament. But sometimes just the word prophets is used. Why? Because was Moses a prophet? Surely. What was one of the prophecies? After me will come one, a prophet like unto Moses. Moses was a prophet. Moses wrote the law. And so you could wrap up the entire Old Testament by saying the prophets. John 6.45, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Ephesians 2.20, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, meaning old and new together with Christ as the chief cornerstone. So, in other words, Paul says, the gospel of God, which you promised beforehand, 
through his prophets, the writers of the Old Testament. In what way does God use the prophets? It says, through his prophets, meaning that the prophets are the uh, channel. Uh, Right now, this microphone is taking my voice, and through this sound system, you're hearing it. Well, the prophet was like the sound system for the voice of God, for the Word of God. People heard God through them. Uh, It it was as if the, the prophet was the straw dipped into the cup, the fresh, cool water of God's Word, and to receive this Word was through the channel of the straw. But the prophet was the channel. The communication of the promise of gospel of God was through the prophets. The prophet was not the main point. The prophet was just... The channel. And we're also told something else about these prophets. It says through his prophets. Uh, they, they were his. There were many prophets in the Old Testament. Many prophets in the ancient world. Uh, Lamentations 2.14, for example, your prophets have seen for you. See that language? Your prophets. False and deceptive visions They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Your prophets. Ezekiel 13.1, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and saying to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have nothing. How many prophets did Baal have in the days of Elijah? 450. My point is this. The Egyptians had prophets. The Greeks had the oracle of Delphi. There were many prophets, many seers, many oracles. But God did not use any of them. He had his prophets. Those were his chosen vessels. Those were the ones that he communicated the promise of the gospel of God through. Why did he choose them? Was it because they were the most righteous around? Was it because they were more noble? Was it because he knew, I'm going to choose you because you're going to choose me? Elijah. He got so discouraged that he wanted to die. Jonah disobeyed the Lord and battled with unforgiveness. Moses murdered an Egyptian. Isaiah said of himself, I am a man of unclean lips. Shall I go on? How about Abraham? He lied, doubted God. Isaac showed favoritism with his children. Jacob was a liar and a deceiver. Noah got drunk. Samuel was a terrible father. David committed murder and adultery. And should I say anything about Solomon? You, you get the point. God chooses weak, sinful, flawed people to be his sound system. He could have used angels, spotless, perfect servants of the Most High who never would have sinned and done exactly what He said, but God in His infinite wisdom chose, not angels, but sinful men to be His sound system. You know what's amazing? The idea of God using sinful people to communicate His truth continues to this day. In fact, if you are here and you're a Christian, somebody was the channel for you. Tell each other one another's testimonies and listen for it. Listen for the point where they say, and there was this friend, or my parent, or I had this roommate, or I had this neighbor, or there was this stranger, and what did they do? They told me about Jesus. They handed me a tract. They sent me a Paul Washer sermon. They gave me a Bible. It was somebody God used to communicate His truth through to get you to the knowledge of the promise of the gospel of God. And that's why you are a Christian to this day. There was someone who was a channel in your life. What about you? He chose you too, in spite of you. Not because you're good, not because you would choose him, but because he wanted you. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit 
and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. 1 Corinthians 1.26, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish, that's us, in the world to shame the wise. The same thing He did with the prophets is the same thing He does now with you and I. He chooses the weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And, may I say this, if the Lord loved you while you were weak, if He loved you while you were a sinner, if He chose you and wanted you while you were a rebel to Him, now that you're His, will He throw you away because you're dirty? The final thing I'll say on this matter is this. Who are you a channel for? The reality is every single one of us is a channel for someone. The prophets, his prophets, chosen by him, were filled by his spirit. His word was in their mouth and God communicated through them. Everybody is someone's channel. Either you are a channel for the Most High God, for the promise of the gospel goes forth, or you are a channel for the devil, for the world, or for yourself. But you are communicating on behalf of someone else doctrines. Who do you speak for? Whose instrument are you? Well, the prophets were the channels of God's truth. But where are their words? The verse says, through his prophets, where? In the Holy Scriptures. Literally, set apart writings. Why are they called set apart or holy? Again, there were many writings in the ancient world. Many books, many scrolls, all kinds of religions, ancient Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Greeks, Confucians, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, Buddhists, Hindus, Mormons, Islam, Wiccans, they even have a Jedi religion. There's writings. There are many scrolls and many manuscripts and many libraries and many books and they fill the world and people have them and they treasure them. But there is only one source that is called holy. There is only one writing that is considered the word of God. And that's what this verse is saying. None of those books contains the gospel of God except this one. Only the Bible is holy, is godly, is true. You can take all the books that this world has together and they don't amount to a single verse of Scripture. What makes the Holy Scriptures so holy? The author. The author is the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Why is the Bible considered Holy Scripture? Because the author is the Holy Spirit. God wrote this book, not man. Another reason is because not only is the author holy, but the channels were set apart and sanctified. Luke 1.68 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. Holy Spirit, Holy Prophet. The Bible has holy content. It contains the holy law of God. It contains the truth about the holy, holy, holy one. It tells of the, may, the way of salvation. The content, the information that is here is holy. You know what's interesting? We can be very secretive. The government's spying. We don't like people to know what we're doing. Uh, but you know what God has done? He has given us His mind. 
He's told us his will. He's told us his purposes. He's told us his plans. You can actually look into the mind of God, know his secret and personal plans and wills and purposes for everything. This contains the holy will and mind of God. There is no other source. We sang it this morning. Where shall I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. There's no other place that we can go to hear about God, to know about God. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Are you reading the Bible? Are you really treasuring what we have here, the word of God, the holy scriptures? Remember what David said in uh, 1 Samuel 21? He said, have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. The priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Is that how you see the word of God? There's none like that. Give it to me. Uh, that's the one I want. The, 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 the Bible is holy because of its power. It's alive. It raises the dead. It strengthens the weak. It comforts the discouraged. It lifts up the depressed. Are, are you reading it? What does the Bible say about itself? It's a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul, of spirit. Only this book can do that. Of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible can read your thoughts. It can take your heart and spread it open and touch the darkest corner. The things that you have secretly hidden. It goes there. The Bible says of itself, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's an eternal word. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God never fails. It accomplishes what it's intended to. It touches to the very soul, to the heart. How shall a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to his word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. The, the help to walk in holiness, the help to behold God, the help to see wondrous beauties of truth are found here. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever time passes fads come and go there are ebb and flow and all manner of things but the word of god remains steadfast powerful useful relevant no matter the time you can turn to a page of scripture and say this sounds like it was written today it is for us it's eternal because the author is god himself and he's written it to, to reveal himself to us and God doesn't change. His word doesn't change. The scripture continues, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God is imperishable. We can sum it up, Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Is that how you see Scripture? I mean, really honestly ask yourself, someone offers you a bag of gold or a Bible, which one would you say is more important? 
Which one would you treat with more protection? Would you lock away the gold in a safe, in a case, and make sure no one touches it, but the Bible you just throw on the floor? This is the word of our God. It's more desire than gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. God Almighty, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, here he is in the wilderness. The devil comes with all of his power to tempt him. What does Jesus reach for? He reaches for Scripture. He reaches for the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Why? Because like David, he said, there's none like it. Give that to me. Jesus, who had all power, reached for God's Word because he knew the power that was contained in it. The prophets preached it. The saints were comforted by it. The Word of God is holy because it's powerful. And it's remained. It's endured. You know how many people have tried to stamp out Scripture? How many efforts have been made to try to get rid of it, erase it? But what does Jesus say? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It's still saving sinners. It's still exalting the Lord. It's still strengthening the church and condemning the wicked. Uh, Ken Ham said this, God's word survived despite intense efforts to destroy it. For instance, in 175 B.C., the king of Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes, ordered the Jews on pain of death to destroy their scriptures and worship the Greek gods. But Judas Maccabeus saved the books and led a revolt that won independence for the Jewish nation. Another example is the Roman emperor Diocletian, who ordered to have Christianity outlawed, its leaders killed, and their Bibles burned. As a sign of God's providence, the next emperor, Constantine, legalized Christianity and paid for 50 new handwritten copies of the Bible. The word of God is holy because of how it has endured. Many men said, I will kill the Bible, and the Bible shows up to their funeral. But our context focuses on this as we bring this to an end. The main reason for the title of Holy Scriptures is because the the Scripture is the only place where the promised Gospel of God through the prophets is found. Here is where the Gospel is found in Scripture. The Lord's holy promises are found in its pages Acts 3.17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that His Christ would suffer, He thus fulfilled. Have you ever thought about preaching the Gospel from the Old Testament? Would you even know where to go? Would you know what to do? I mean, this is exactly, and our brother uh, Chris has been, I was going to say Paul, our brother Chris has been uh, telling us These very things from Acts. When you look at Peter, what did he use for the day of Pentecost to preach the gospel? He used the Old Testament. Acts 17, 2, and Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, that's the Old Testament, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. This is what the apostles used. This is what the believers used. The Old Testament. Do you see Jesus in Genesis? Do you see Him in Ezra? Do you see Him in Malachi or in Samuel? Final point. Not only is the gospel promised, not only is it a biblical gospel, but it is a focused gospel. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And what is the gospel of God all about? What does the next phrase say? Concerning who? His Son. The gospel is promised. The gospel is biblical. The gospel of God is focused and is focused upon a person. 
It's not just good news of salvation. It's good news of a savior. It's not just good news of redemption. It's good news of a redeemer. It's not just good news of being forgiven by God, but it is the good news that we can be forgiven so that we can have fellowship with God in his son. Children, can you have a sandwich without bread? Can you play soccer without a ball? Can you see without eyes or hear without ears? This is what Paul means here. If you remove Christ from the gospel, guess what you have? Bad news. Gospel is good news, and it's only good news because it's about Christ, and it points to Christ. It finds it's everything in Christ. Uh, John Calvin says this, this is a remarkable passage by which we are taught that the whole gospel is included in Christ. So that if any removes one step from Christ, he withdraws himself from the gospel. The gospel is all about Christ. Isn't that what he said himself when he was on the road uh, to Emmaus with those two disciples? He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. May I read something to you? I love this. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the priest, the altar, and the lamb of sacrifice. In Numbers, he is the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. He is the bronze serpent that healed the infected. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman and redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is the rebuilder of broken down walls of human life. In Nehemiah, Jesus is our restorer. In Esther, he is our advocate. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our good shepherd. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is our hope of resurrection. In the Song of Songs, he is our loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, Jesus is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he is the righteous wronged. In Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the one with the right to rule. In Daniel, Jesus is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband forever married to the saints. In Joel, he is the one who baptized with the Holy Spirit, fire. In Amos, he is the restorer of justice. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is our great foreign missionary. In Micah, Jesus is the feet of one who brings good news. In Nahum, Jesus is our stronghold in the day of trouble. In Habakkuk, he is God, my Savior. In Zephaniah, he is the king of Israel. In Haggai, he is the signet ring. In Zechariah, he is our humble king riding on a colt. In the branch... In Malachi, Jesus is the son of righteousness. Do you know him? Do you see him? Do you trust him? When you read your Old Testament, is he there? It's all about him. It all points to him. It all tells of his coming, his suffering, his dying, and his resurrection. Jesus said in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And as it is, they bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I have here... 351 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Jesus Christ. I'm obviously not going to read these to you, but you get the point. The whole Old Testament is about Him. It all points to Him and it tells of His coming. It tells of His betrayal. It tells that He will be forsaken, that He'll be accused, that He'll be silent before His accusers, that He'll be wounded and bruised, hated without a cause, struck and spit on. It even talks about He will be crucified before crucifixion was even created. Every detail down to the fact that He will thirst and that His clothes will be gambled for. The gospel of God is promised. The gospel of God is biblical. And the gospel of God is focused upon Jesus Christ. Are you telling people about this gospel? Are you resting and trusting in this gospel? Are you reading 
about this gospel. Brothers and sisters, you must, for there is no hope and no help anywhere else but here. Father, we thank You for the Gospel of God which was promised beforehand that what we have is an ancient Gospel. It's not new. It's not some new religion. It didn't arrive with Paul. It's not something that racist slave traders came up with to try to uh, muscle Africans or anything foolish like that. No, what we have, Lord, is your divine wisdom. The gospel is the message that you promised even before the world was formed. And now, Lord, we as recipients of it, may we see Christ and treasure the promises of the gospel and rest and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of God. In Jesus' name, amen.